0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for a classic episode of the show. This one originally aired on October 22nd, 2020, and it's our episode on the leshy, the old man of the forest. Yeah, this is a lot of fun, a lot of discussion of Russian
1: folk tales and becoming lost in the woods. It's it's a great episode to listen to here uh, at the end of October. It was near sunset when the old man looked up from his labors and saw the stranger approaching from the west. And though his eyes were weaker than they once were, he soon saw that the stranger carried himself like a soldier, though he bore no weapon that could be seen. And so the old man continued scraping his hides till the stranger approached close enough to greet him.
0: Hello, Grandfather. Oh, please, don't let me disturb your labor. I just wanted to ask, is this the way to the Greenwood Path? Eh, it is, but what business have you in the woods? Not the woods, Grandfather. The land's on the other side. You see, I'm returned from the war, and I seek my family's farm. It's been five long years, and I'm eager to aid them with the harvest. There's no path through the green forest. At least none blazed by the likes of you or me. Game trails, then. Well, so happens I'm a gifted tracker, and can make my own way. (laughs) your own way, huh? If there are any landmarks you might alert me to, well, I'd be most gracious. But the old man didn't answer right away he looked out to the
1: woods and instead motioned back towards his hut where the old woman would have supper ready soon enough tell you what stay with us tonight and i'll tell you of the forest what the young soldier lacked in caution he made up for in politeness when he had finished his bowl of rabbit stew he thanked the old man and woman a half dozen times He cleaned the bowls and scrubbed the pot. He split more wood for the fire and even produced a bottle of spirits, which he shared with the old man. So tell me of the forest, grandfather. You'll not find your own way through the green forest. Not by moonlight and not by day, what little of either filters down to the treetops. The animal paths won't help you either. They'll only wind you down into greater depths. There is neither your way... Nor my way in the green forest. There is only the law of the woods, and there is a leshy.
0: I don't think I'll be troubled by some forest dwarf. Tis no dwarf.
1: The leshy has always been in the old forest. He was there before human tribes roamed in. He was there when strange animals still ranged these parts, and he is no man nor dwarf, but a shaggy figure that casts no shadow. ...that stares straight through the forest depths with eyes that burn like green fire. He passes gigantic behind the great trees and sneaks meekly behind the nearest blade of grass. Like that, he is on you, and he who breaks the forest
0: law is broken. Well, then tell me the forest law so that I might avoid him.
1: The forest law is not like man's law. It can't be told or written down. Our very nature breaks it as much as our axe.
0: But you're a trapper how do you avoid the leshy's wrath
1: i do not trap in the woods but at its border and for that the leshy spares me and asks but one more thing that i warn wanderers such as yourself the young soldier nodded and smiled but the old man could tell he was only being mannerly he did not believe his tale of the leshy and would not be swayed from his shortcut through the woods and so the next morning he thanked the old man and woman yet again and departed into the green forest, no doubt thinking he'd found the makings of a path or discovered some logic in the dead leaves beneath his feet. The old man went back to his traps and snares near the forest's edge. He flinched when he heard the first startled scream from the forest depths, then the howl of the leshy as it tore the young soldier, limb from limb. As he walked back home his spirit sapped by the sounds. He caught once more the sense of something vast and shaggy walking just behind the great tree trunks, yet tiptoeing impossibly behind the smallest shrub or mushroom, not like a thing that moved through the woods, but like something reflected in its substance.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your
0: Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and hey, it's still October. Uh, We are still going strong with the monster stuff, and boy, I'm, I'm excited about today's episode. So, Rob, if it's okay with you, I want to begin by reading uh, reading a quote. Are you, you cool starting this way? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so this quote is recorded in a 1989 book called Russian Folk Belief by a Penn State professor of Russian and comparative literature named Linda J. Ivantis. And this quote is attributed to an old woman from the Kaluga province of Russia describing what she believed to have witnessed during the height of a forest fire. So she says... I looked, and bears, and with them wolves, foxes, hares, squirrels, elk, goats. In a word, every sort of forest life, and each in his own group, not mixing with the others, thronged out of the forest, and past me, and the horses, not even looking at us, and behind the beasts, with his knout over his shoulder, and horn in his hands, was he himself, and he was the size of a bell tower. He himself, tall as a bell tower, dragging the horn and the nout. Uh, and a nout means a whip or a scourge. Who is he? Who's she talking about? She's talking about the Leshy, an awesome monster of Slavic mythology, the demon of the woods, sort of a malevolent trickster ent.
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, I I was reading about the the Leshy. I was not uh, not really familiar with it prior to our research here but uh, according to Carol Rose in her uh, excellent Spirits, Fairies, Leprechauns, and Goblins, an encyclopedia, uh, there there are numerous different versions of the spelling and and or pronunciation of the name. You see it kind of like Leshy, but also Lesovic or Leshak or Lesnor. Uh, So there are uh, several different variations on it. Uh, But just as as the name is kind of uh, amorphous, uh, the you know the actual substance of the creature is also a fair bit amorphous too, which one might expect with folkloric traditions and any kind of entity that arises out of out of out of old beliefs and old uh, legends, old mythologies.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah. So the leshy is not something that comes originally from one canonical source. It it is a folk belief, and thus you're going to get lots of different versions of it. And I think it's going to be really fun to explore where a lot of these different stories overlap and then what the differences are. Yeah. So Rose points out that the leshy is essentially a Russian nature spirit
1: and forest guardian. He's often described as a a pale humanoid figure with green eyes, green beard, and long straggly hair. He wears a pair of uh, of, uh, of boots uh, often made from bark, uh, and he wears them on the wrong feet. It's often said that he casts no shadow, and he's also a shapeshifter. Uh, he, and as we tried to reflect in our opening uh, bit of uh, narration there, a little uh, dramatic opening, uh, it's said that he can be as tall as a great tree or as small as a blade of grass. Likewise, he can mimic any sound in the forest, which is a tool he might use to lead humans astray sometimes.
0: Yes, and this is one of the main threats that the Leshy represents. That there, there are, again, a number of stories, but the most common ways that he he represents a threat to human existence are – in making sounds or in laying sort of traps and tricks that lead travelers off the path and get them lost in the woods to wander hopelessly until they they die in the woods or die in a swamp. Or the other thing is that he's often said to kidnap babies at the edge of the forest or to kidnap children, especially unbaptized babies and children. Uh, and a lot of sources mention this, this idea of him luring wanderers off the forest path by making noises Uh, one of the sources i was reading for this episode is a book by elizabeth warner called russian myths from the university of texas press in 2002 and warner says the leshy would quote hoot roar and howl and the voices of birds and beasts emit wild bursts of laughter or blood-curdling shrieks and clap his hands loudly uh, so so it seems like there are a couple of different ways that you might catch the leshy making sounds in the forest, sometimes maybe mimicking the voice of an animal or a human in order to lure somebody off the path, or sometimes just making a lot of noise, maybe to mess with your head, kind of scare you or make you laugh. Now, picking up on the leshy's appearance, uh, there are several sources that summarize the folklore. Again, this is from uh, Warner and Russian Myths. Uh, the leshy may and often does look and dress like an ordinary human being. Like there are some stories where the leshy leaves the forest and interacts with humans as if he, you know, looked like any other human. But in fact, again, he is a shapeshifter, so he can mimic the appearance of not just all the animals of the forest. Those are common forms. He takes, especially the form of a wolf or a bear, but he can also mimic the appearance of any particular person. So a child might be lured into the forest by a, Vision of their own grandfather offering them fruits and sweets, or a person uh, might be, you know, antagonized or, or lured off the path in the woods by the shape of their own father, or mother, or husband, or wife, or even their child. But, much like the succubus who appears as a seductive, beautiful woman, but with, say, a duck's foot the leshy in disguise will usually have a detail out of place, and that detail will be noticeable to the observant hero. You mentioned the idea that the leshy might cast no shadow, or have their shoes on the wrong feet or backwards. Warner gives the examples that uh the leshy might be wearing a caftan, a like a like a Russian traveler might wear But the kaftan would be buttoned backwards, or his eyes might be extremely pale, or he might have no eyebrows. I like that one. Or, again, he might cast no shadow. And and then finally, this one seems particularly relevant in his role in confusing travelers in a forest. He might leave no footprints. I love how common this detail is across so much different folklore that the monster or the trickster demon will have some kind of detail wrong that allows you to spot it. Yeah, and
1: it's the kind of myth, that, uh, kind of legend that, that appeals well to our, our, our nature, you know, because when, when we're just encountering people for the first time, situations for the first time, the suspicious mind is always looking for, for some sort of a tell, right? Like, what's weird about this person? What's weird about this place?
0: Yeah and and it also it makes the myth more fair. I mean unlike just the leshy being a, a a power that cannot possibly be overcome and it just takes whoever it wants and does whatever it wants. The the fact that there's some detail often wrong with it allows the observant hero, the virtuous protagonist of the story to to catch them to be like, "Hey, wait a minute, there's something wrong with you." Yes. It makes, you, it makes you think that maybe if you are clever enough, if you're observant enough, then you could best the leshy. Now, Warner agrees with the, what we already talked about, about the leshy being able to dramatically change size, and it's often reported in these stories that he can become taller than the tallest treetops. Remember the story at the beginning, the, the woman who says the leshy was like a bell tower, or he can be small small enough to hide behind grass or behind a mushroom. Now, in his true form... Warner says that the Leshy's appearance betrays his affinity for the vegetation of the forest, so his skin might very much resemble the bark of a tree. It will be rough and gnarly. And sometimes he's said to be completely covered in hair, but sometimes he's just got hair on his head and a beard, and in those cases his hair and beard might be as green as the vines and the grass. But some imagery of the Leshy is more classically devilish in the Christian sense or at least in the syncretistic Christian sense that, that combines sort of Satan with the God pan uh, War- Warner says that many descriptions include shaggy hair, almost like moss, but also cloven hooves and horns on his head and a tail like the devil's tail. And then finally, she mentions that the horns are golden in the case of one particular leshy known as the leshy czar. Ah. But anyway, I, I think this devilish appearance is is interesting because it, uh, it it makes sense based on something that Warner talks about in her book, which is called the dual faith. Uh, this idea that after Christianity took over the Kievan Rus state in the 10th century, Christianity and old pagan practices kind of meshed together. They coexisted for hundreds of years. Yeah, and we've discussed examples of this before with other
1: other legends and folklores and even mythologies um, where. Yeah, the new, a new faith comes along, and it doesn't just wipe out the old. It adds new wrinkles to the old or and or exists alongside the old uh, in ways that, that may, may not make sense if you were to say, write them out or discuss them. You know, it's, it's always fascinating how even as modern humans, the various conflicting worldviews and ideas of the natural and the supernatural
0: that can uh, simultaneously exist in our minds it can be hard to enforce the borders of one supernatural picture of the world. It, it, like it can be hard to sort of like beat into people like, no, no, no. Like this part, these supernatural beliefs are acceptable, but these other ones that your grandparents believed and and their grandparents before them, you can't believe those anymore.
1: Yeah. Like I remember when I was younger, there was a time when I was at least a, a bit afraid of the prospect of both Aliens and ghosts, which rationally, it seems like, you know, now I'm looking back and like, well, surely I should have just picked one or the other. Like one would seem more likely than the other. And that should be the one to be afraid of. I can't be, you know, Uh I I can't just be afraid of everything that's on Unsolved Mysteries. I have to pick, you know, like obviously be afraid of the criminals, (laughs) but then choose aliens or ghosts. Like I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't take both on.
0: But no, Unsolved Mysteries presents a perfect syncretistic view of the world where all paranormal phenomena exist simultaneously.
1: Now, uh, additionally, as Rose points out, each forest is said to have its own leshy, unless it's a very large forest. And then, I get, then you can have more than one leshy. I guess it just comes down to it's kind of like having park rangers. Right. Depends just how big the park is.
0: Right. They got a, like a range, a territory. Right, uh, furthermore,
1: the leshi may have a wife in some traditions, uh, which is uh, a Lesovika, and then there are sometimes uh, leshi children or uh, lashanki, and there 's also a variety of leshi, sometimes described as a as a zoi, a botschnik uh, that takes on the guise and sound of a baby gurgling in the treetops so in that in that case, an, a, a quality that is sometimes uh, as- ascribed to the leshy, in general, is sometimes pulled out and made its own particular thing.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting, the idea of giving a leshy a family allows you to to sort of add in more dynamics that would explain natural phenomena, potentially. Like, for example, one of our sources was saying that if you saw a whirlwind, I think, mean you know, a whirlwind or even a tornado, that was the leshy dancing with his wife. So adding the wife in, you know, they're twirling through the forest – but this dovetails with another interesting belief, which is that sometimes fallen trees found in the forest were said to have been knocked over by fights between Leshies. But you know, you put those two things together, it kind of dovetails into this interesting idea that I, I wonder if people at some point maybe came across the, the path that a tornado or whirlwind had cut through a forest and, you know, you, all, all, it looks like something has just, like, come through and mowed this this shaved line out through the middle of the woods and what happened here? Well, it was Leshy's fighting or it was Leshy's dancing. Yeah, because there are no tracks. There, you know, there are no. there's no sign that animals did this and yet
1: something large has, uh, has trampled the woods. Now, uh, like the forest itself, uh, you know, uh, at least from a folkloric standpoint, the, the the Leshy is said to die with the advent of winter and then emerge from his winter death in the spring. And it's during this time, uh, once the leshies have come back, that it's said that the, that the leshies of the forest rage over the, their autumn deaths. They, they realize that they had died previously, and now they're mad about it. And this raging produces storms and floods in the process. But then all that settles down again. So here we see an idea of the leshy as a way to explain not only specific storm um, damage, but also just the general pattern of like spring storm storms on top of that the the leshy is a bit of a a bit of a trickster uh, again sometimes calling out to human travelers with the sounds of the forest to lead them astray even taking the form of a fellow traveler to give them bad advice or guidance disappearing and laughing once they manage to get them lost in a bog or worse um, and uh You'll have other individuals, though, that are wise to the ways of the Leshy. They, they'll know how to outsmart them, or, and we'll get into an example of how to outsmart them in a bit, but also making offerings to them, such as salt and bread.
0: Yeah. Elizabeth Warner points out how there was some kind of division. Like she starts by saying that, of course, you know, for many Russian people living at the edge of the forest, the forest was itself an image of, of great bounty, but also great chaos and great danger. And that is, of course, true. Like, you know, becoming lost in the forest, you can quite easily die. This is something I think a lot of people mm-hmm. don't really remember these days. Maybe they go out and experience the forest in, say, uh, nature trails that have forged paths that you can follow. But, like, it's really easy to get lost and die in the woods. And I want to talk more about the science of that later on. Uh, but, but then there are these professions where people would have to go into the woods in order to make a living. For example, there would be herdsmen and hunters, like you mentioned. And herdsmen, very often in medieval Russia, would not graze their cattle in open pastures, but would graze them through the woods. They would have to find, you know, like little uh, patches and openings throughout the trees. And so it would require them to go into the domain of the Leshi and, and risk, risk all these dangers. And so Warner writes, quote, protective measures could be taken against the Leshi, making the sign of the cross, uttering a prayer or spell, and more interestingly, reversing one's clothing or retracing one's steps backwards out of the forest. Reversal of the normal back-to-frontness, upside-downness, left as opposed to right, were all signs of the supernatural in Russian tradition.
1: Yes, I, I I absolutely love this uh, this example. The idea of wearing your clothes backwards or walking backwards as a way to to outsmart uh, the leshy, um, and we see we see versions of this that pop up in other traditions as well. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I read that you see this in Irish folklore sometimes concerning uh, encounters or potential encounters with dangerous varieties of fairy. Um, uh, and the idea here, it seems, and this is going to vary. There's not like you know anybody wrote wrote this down and came up with necessarily a straightforward reason that this works. But uh, one one interpretation is that it's just about confusing the spirit. Like the spirit's like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this uh, woodsman uh, now, and then he realizes, oh, uh, that what what's going on here? His clothes are on backwards. I don't know what to do. I guess I'll just watch him for a bit, or. It tricks the spirit or fairy or leshy in this case into thinking you're leaving rather than arriving. And I <laughs> I love the twisted logic of this where it's like the, the Leshy shows up, it's like all right, it's time to time to, to to unleash some havoc. Well look at this guy coming into my far wait. Oh, the, the way their clothes are, 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 are based, it looks like he's walking away. All right, he's good. He's leaving. <laughs> Carry on. You know, well, it's just fabulous.
0: Yeah, this is really funny because it kind of connects to the idea of wearing eye spots on your back to deter predators in the forest.
1: Yeah, yeah, which is, which is something that has been been done, uh, we've discussed this on the show before, to, with varying degrees of, of success with both humans and also putting eye spots on the back of cattle to deter lion attacks in, uh, in parts of Africa now uh, as rose points out that the leshy can be very generally classified as a guardian spirit which we see in various and far-flung cultures many versions of this revolve around the protection of individuals uh and and these should be pretty familiar with a lot of to a lot of people you have like the guardian angels of latin greek and russian orthodox and and anglican churches these are a sign from the hour uh, of an individual's birth uh, interestingly, uh, one that uh, Rose describes in her book is the grind, a of in the folklore of Morocco that's described as kind of inhabiting a parallel world. So it's not that they're assigned to an individual, but they're they're born at the same moment in this other world. And so there's this bond between the two. Likewise, you also have just uh, daemons and lars, you know, getting into ancient Greek and Roman tradition. And one also sees this concept in, in the traditions of, say, uh, in Native American tribes, Native Australian cultures as well. There, there are a, a lot of these to list, and she has a lot, a lot of them in the book, ranging from the Abgal to the Zoa. But then, as an extension of this, there's the idea of a protector spirit that looks after particular places, such as standing stones or mounds or certain natural
0: places and or animals. And so clearly, this is going to be the kind of guardian or protector that the leshy is, not of a person, but of a place, which is the woods
1: right yeah the the protector of the forest uh, very very much in keeping with such woodland or vegetation spirits as the uh, the gandharvas of india which are described as being like shaggy half animal beings in some tellings or the green man of ancient european traditions a a quote pagan image of a grotesque severed head with emergent foliage from the mouth beard and hairline uh, we find him in Christian churches from the sixth century onward. He's a he's a wild man of the woods, a guardian spirit of the forest, and like the Leshy, is prone, uh, you know, to, to tricks and meanness in the woods, you know, leading people astray, etc. He is uh, also the the genesis of both the Green Knight of Arthurian legend
0: and of Robin Hood. Yeah, I think one traditional interpretation of the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is of a conflict between the Christian chivalric virtues represented by the Arthurian court and by uh, Sir Gawain, and then on the other hand, the sort of pagan embodiment of nature and the wilderness that is the Green Knight, a.k.a. the Green Man.
1: Now, of course, we have various modern versions of this tale as well. The most the most obvious, at least to me, being the character Swamp Thing Uh, which is very much a a guardian spirit in the tradition of the green man and the leshy, though more of a noble twist as a pure protector as opposed to a trickster. And this is especially the case in the Alan Moore run of the character uh, in the comic books. But you also see it in most uh, cinematic and TV incarnations. Like, I I kept thinking back to this time and time again, reading about the leshy. Uh, The 1990s TV show version of Swamp Thing uh, had this... um, this catchphrase that uh, that the Swamp Thing would always say uh, at the end of the intro to the TV episode and it was "Do not bring your evil here." <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was the evil? It was like a like a polluting factory or something. Oh yeah, polluting
1: factory, just general mad science from uh, Doctor Anton Arcane, you know that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the swamp thing is very much in line with this tradition. I think one of the interesting things, if you start thinking about modern standards versus, uh, 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 versus these more archaic versions of the myth, and this is something I tried to, to sort of get at in that uh, dramatic opening, the idea of to what extent humans can understand the law of the forest, and i think these these more recent versions like swamp thing they tend to imply they, they kind of take on i think this environmental message of like yes we can understand the law of the forest at least to some extent and we can do good for the forest and I, and i and i believe i agree with that i think that is part of our responsibility to the forest as as protectors we are kind of we have to take on the mantle of the swamp thing and the leshy and the green man but the, I think the more archaic version of this is, again, like you said the forest is a place of chaos if it has a law it is a law that we cannot really understand and it's a law that is not written and maybe you know it can't even be comprehended by us and therefore there's even more danger in running afoul of it because you 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 can't really comprehend all the details of that law
0: yeah i th- i think it's kind of like the law of the hidden folk it's the law of the other world and the yes. these uh these laws I think sometimes in a lot of folk traditions can be understood by, but only by certain special kinds of people, people who have a, uh, often people who are in some way considered otherwise not normal. Yeah, uh,
1: like another modern take that gets into this is um, Miyazaki's uh, My Neighbor Totoro, which of course is inspired by Japanese and Shinto traditions, but the Totoro that we encounter, they're very much forest guardian spirits. And in Miyazaki's version of this, the only ones who can really, who can certainly see them and to a certain extent understand them are children, like children have that privileged insight
0: into the, the, the rules and laws and existence of this other world. It's almost like we're born with an understanding of the law of the forest, but the process of socialization and maturing beats it out of us. Yes. Uh, yeah. So this is one of the reasons at the beginning I said that the Leshy is kind of like a malevolent trickster. Int it's like if the int were a demon, because it makes me think of the the scenes in Lord of the Rings where the orcs are punished for hacking down the trees of Fangorn Forest. You know, the the trees get revenge and and the Ents get very angry to see their forest destroyed. This is something that that does come through in some of the folk tales. Uh, for example, Warner talks about how. There were certain things you could do in the forest or near the forest to really especially bring on the Leshy's wrath. And these things might involve whistling, swearing, making a noise, willful damage of flowers or trees, or hunting on certain church festivals, (laughs) which that last one seems kind (laughs) of incongruous with the others. And maybe it's tacked on a bit by the, by the, uh, by the priests.
1: I agree with all of those going on a lot of nature hikes these days. I I feel like uh, I feel like we need a leshy enforcing all of those rules plus social distancing norms. (laughs) Yeah. But that's just me.
0: You know, I wonder if I ever needed to get another job, could I get a job as a kind of leshy, like at a state park or something? I would just wander around the forest. If I find somebody carving their name into a tree or, you know, littering or whatever, I make them wander off the path into a bog.
1: <laughs> you know, I, had, I my family actually had a, a very recent experience on a hike, which kind of felt akin to running afoul of the forest. We never got off of a paved path because it had just been a very mm-hmm. rainy uh, weekend and uh, And so we knew that you know we needed to get it like a paved path to walk on, but we still on this one particular road, we encountered first a, a stretch of the road where mud had washed over everything, so suddenly we were tromping through mud, and then immediately we were set upon by by f- by a whole cloud of mosquitoes despite being kind of late in the year and i kid you not at the very same moment two deer showed up and a snake crossed the road in front of us wow. uh, like very close to us so like suddenly it just felt like like the, the the woods were opening up and speaking to us and saying that we should not proceed any further and in fact we turned back
0: he's about to come out in bell tower form with the nowt over his shoulder yeah leave this place do not bring your evil here all right well i think we need to take a break but when we come back let's talk about grandfather mushroom all right we're back so we know
1: as usual that listeners uh, to to our episodes uh, you know are far flung and some of you are going to have a a great deal of familiarity with uh, these various uh you know russian folk uh, tales that we're discussing here for for others of you though you might only be familiar with them through some of the more popular uh, you know mainstream western treatments. Like one thing that comes to mind is once again Jim Henson's uh, Storyteller series. The first season of that relied heavily on Russian folktales.
0: I actually haven't seen that first season. I've only watched uh, some of the Greek episodes, so maybe I should go back and check that out. It's like it's like slavic folklore
1: yeah yeah there. um you know the, the, the czar shows up in, in one of them so uh there are several really good t- good tales in there like th- that whole season is worth watching but there are some really good ones like the soldier and death uh is a great one uh that, that one in particular is wonderful but another place that uh, a lot of you might be familiar with russian uh, folklore is from a particular 1965 film uh, titled uh, Morozko or Jack Frost, and there's a very good chance you're familiar with this film because Mystery Science Theater 3000 famously featured it uh, in one of their episodes. So uh, this is how this is certainly how I discovered it. Uh, but I've I've had conversations with people like I, I was this is years and years ago i was talking to someone from the czech republic and they pointed out oh yeah they they would show that every year for christmas that was our christmas film like that is that is a part of our holiday culture and uh and and and, and at this point I, I would say jack frost is also part of my holiday culture i, I rewatch it every year uh-huh. uh, but you know it's, it's it's a little bit different coming at it from this uh lampooning um uh, direction but it is a, a very beautiful film, and if you've only seen like a you know this, this really degraded quality version of it um, as far as like the, the video quality goes on Mystery Science Three Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand, I, I challenge everyone out there to check out a pristine cut of this. Either I think there's a version as of this recording available on Amazon Prime, or you can also sometimes find uh, you know versions of it on YouTube that have just the full glorious quality of the film. It is a beautiful movie. And even without
0: the riffing, extremely watchable and extremely enjoyable. This is, I, I've never thought about the idea that this was a commonly viewed Christmas film for lots of people. So, like here in America, we've got Bumble's Bounce, and then maybe throughout Eastern Europe, they've got We Will Rob Them, We Won't Rob Them, We Will Beat Them, <laughs> We Will Be Beaten. Yes, yeah. I mean really it's it's not fair because we have
1: like Charlie Brown Christmas which is awful. Uh but but they have Jack Frost <laughs> you, which you is you don't like wonderful. your, oh
0: man we're we, are, we are going to get hate mail. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, it's it's fine. I it's 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 perfectly okay. It's just not my thing. <laughs>
0: I mean no th- this is a wonderful movie it's got it's it's so imaginative I love when Ivan gets the bear head I love grandfather mushroom I love the bandits I, I love the, uh, the 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 creepy girl it's it's fantastic
1: yeah, it's, it has so many, it actually has so many wonderful elements of, of Russian folk tales. They're just straight out of Russian folk tales that really you could, you could watch that film and you already are in a great place to begin a, reading more Russian tales and exploring them from yourself because it has, you know, you have the, the, you have, uh, Ivan Zarovich, uh, is the, you know, the, the blonde guy who gets his head turned into a bear in the film. He is a staple of Russian folk tales. You have Baba Yaga, the, uh, the evil woodland witch. Uh, again, just a staple that you see time and time again. Now, you might be wondering, okay, well, where's, where's the leshy in Jack Frost? And... I don't, we don't have a direct Leshy, and we'll get into some of the reasons for this, but we do have an interesting character that pops up that I instantly thought about in reading all of that, this, and that is, uh, the little grandfather mushroom, father mushroom character, the little diminutive old man with a mushroom cap that shows up and, uh, has a little bit of mischief uh, in him and teaches Ivan a lesson.
0: Yeah, he is portrayed as sort of a wise figure, a figure of the forest, but also like the Leshy, a trickster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he he's playing, he's like doing, he's disappearing, playing hide and seek, sort of taunting Ivan. Um, I don't know if we said his uh, his Russian name. I guess in in Russian, he's known as Starichok Borovichok. Yes, that's what I, I've read as
1: well. You know, Father Grandfather Mushroom, mm-hmm. uh, and and again, he has a very memorable. Um, Uh, appearance in that film now one of the lingering questions that i'll get back to again is i was never able to determine if he has an existence outside of this film like if he if he pre-existed as part of russian folklore i did not run across him in any of the stories i read though i did not read all written accounts of russian folklore and i didn't find him mentioned in any of the academic papers we were looking at but that that doesn't mean anything either uh and certainly that film was such a, a, a big part of, uh, of, of several cultures in 65 uh, uh, hints that you, you look and you find like countless Christmas ornaments of him. So like now he is definitely a part of of our understanding of, of Russian folklore to a certain extent. But I, I wasn't I was never sure if he was authentically something that existed before that film.
0: You know, there are some interesting connections I was thinking about between this this mushroomy character and the leshy beyond just the fact that he is sort of a a trickster guardian of the forest in a way. Uh, There are some other things like, for example, I I was reading in one of our sources that the wrinkles on a mushroom are often said to be the marks of the leshy's whip. Remember, the leshy carries the nout or the whip to show his dominion over the forest. You know, it's like the I'm the boss stick. But apparently the, all the little uh, ribs and wrinkles on the mushrooms are from him flicking the lash.
1: Yeah, I ran across that as well. Um, uh, that, that's that's interesting. That that seems to be the that was the only like, I think, one of the only true leshy mushroom connections I came across. But I, I was reading uh, Fungi Folkways and Fairy Tales, Mushrooms and Mildews and Stories, Remedies and Rituals from Oberon to the Internet by Frank M. Duggan which was published in North American Fungi in 2008. And Duggan writes that Eastern Europe and Russia are generally uh, mycophilic in nature. Again, going back to, uh, we discussed this in a previous episode, how broadly speaking, some cultures are mycophilic and some are mycophobic. And this is often based just in how they describe and broadly view mushrooms. um, uh, and, uh, And certainly listen to our mushroom foraging episode for more insight on that.
0: But yes, uh, Slavic culture is Eastern Europe from, you know, Poland through Russia and Finland. I think it's widely viewed as, uh, as a totally common and desirable thing to go out in the forest looking for mushrooms.
1: And yet at the same time, Duggan points out that there, were, there was still often a taboo against speaking about certain kinds of mushrooms due to sexual connotations associated with them. Huh. Likewise, some sorts of mushrooms were also heavily associated with Baba Yaga, that, uh, that, that evil, um, haggish um, witch that lives in the wood uh, in, uh, in that, uh, that fabulous hut with the chicken leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a story about her hunting for mushrooms and running into a hedgehog that was doing the same thing. So uh, the Baba Yaga and the hedgehog, they reach an understanding, and she later turns him into a boy hero. And then there's also this really interesting uh, bit in light of uh, mycelia. Quote, Baba Yaga is also an associate of magic and benevolent spirits
0: who dwell under mushrooms. Under mushrooms. Well, so you mentioned the mycelia. Yeah, the the fibers that stretch out underneath the soil that are in many ways the actual body of the, the fungus, whereas the mushroom part is just the fruiting body. It's the reproductive part.
1: Yeah, so I I can't help but wonder if that little nugget of folkloric wisdom is is touching on this understanding that there's a you know, there's this vast network beneath the visible mushroom. I don't know. Oh. Huh. Now, speaking of, of Baba Yaga, according to Andreas Johns in Baba Yaga, the ambiguous mother and witch of the Russian folktale, in various Slavic languages and dialects, Baba derived words serve as names for the butterfly, uh cake, uh, types of cake, pears, and certain kinds of mushrooms, as well as the pelican. Hmm. And she is sometimes associated with the Leshi. Uh, the author points out that in the Mezen region, the Leshi's wife is often said to be the Yaga Baba. Oh. Did you mean to say Baba Yaga or? Well, it was written as Yaga Baba. So (laughs) I'm not entirely sure if we're, uh, I mean, it seems very close. We're either either dealing directly with Baba Yaga or some regional twist on it, I'm imagining.
0: The inverted Baba Yaga.
1: Yeah. Johns writes, uh, Melintinsky, uh, referring to an author uh, and his colleagues, feel that Baba Yaga became associated with a forest hut later than uh, figures such as the forest spirit or the bear. Presumably Baba Yaga is a later kind of forest demon because of her anthropomorphic and therefore less archaic form. Whether or not she is the original owner, Baba Yaga is probably the most frequent and popular inhabitant of the forest hut in Eastern Slavic fairy tales. So in that, you know, the authors talking about like forest huts and how they they factor into these various uh, folk tales, but it also points to this idea that that, that you have the Baba Yaga coming along after pre-existing ideas of forest spirits because she's very much a forest spirit. She's very much an encounter you have when you go into the magical Russian forest but there seems to be this idea that the leshy is in essence something more archaic and perhaps uh, i see this reflected in other sources perhaps less story shaped less less fitting for a proper narrative and therefore you actually see less leshy than you might think in uh, in at
0: least known and recorded russian tales maybe the leshy is more often a figure than a character
1: yeah yeah you you do see it see him pop up but less as like a a key antagonist. But we will touch on some examples here in a bit. Now, I also looked around for tales concerning Ivan Tsarevich, the hero in Jack Frost and a traditional Russian character. And I did find a tale concerning concerning Ivan and the Leshy.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, yeah. And this is collected in a fabulous collection titled An Anthology of Russian Folk Tales by Jack V. Haney. OK, let's hear it. All right. So the story mainly concerns Ivan and and uh, the immortal antagonist, uh, Koshche the Deathless, who's this uh, this like evil czar-like being that is encountered in a lot of these tales. Like he's he's kind of the big bad. You, for instance, Baba Yaga is sometimes sometimes like a you know more of the primary villain, but she's often just this weird character you encounter on the way
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh but uh but Koshche the deathless is just all evil and 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 terror and uh and and it's just the, you know the ultimate bad
0: is he sort of sort of
1: a low pan sort of yeah just you know he he can't die but there's some sort of secret to his immortality that the hero has to figure out and in this case that's what ivan is doing trying to figure out how he can deal with this deathless enemy But in one part of the story, uh, Ivan, basically Ivan goes into the forest and is typical in in Russian tales, has encounters in the forest that help and hinder him. So... In the forest, Ivan encounters three leshy in the woods who are searching for their grandfather's buried treasure. And these three treasures are an animate fighting club. So it's like a club and you say, hey, go hit that guy over the head. And the club goes and does it. Um, There's a hat of invisibility, which I don't have to describe because we have versions of this in in every uh, folk uh, uh, lore tradition, I believe. And then you have the fabulous self-laying tablecloth. (laughs) That seems not as good as the other two, <laughs> and yet it's it's amazing, especially I guess if your dungeon master is very um particular about making sure you're 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 eating properly because mm-hmm. the self laying tablecloth is a tablecloth that you whip out and spread on the ground, and it is instantly set with food and beverage oh so it's it's kind
0: of like a loaves and fishes multiplier,
1: absolutely. So the, the Leshy are fighting over the rights to these treasures, which Ivan has already found, by the way. And, and Ivan tricks them into running a foot race instead of fighting. He says, hey, don't fight each other over this. Why don't you run from here to that? See that far tree that you can barely see over there in the horizon? Go run at that. Whoever gets to that first wins. And the Leshy are like, that's great. Let's do it. And they go off to run the race. And so Ivan slips away <laughs> while they're far away from him. From there, he encounters the Baba Yaga at her hut, uh, who he who is seeking for answers on how to um, achieve uh, Koshke, the deathless, uh, how to achieve his death. And of course, the the answer ends up that there's an egg in a box hidden under a mountain that he has to uh, uh, gain access to. So anyway, this is a fun encounter in and of itself. But it also makes me think back to the Jack Frost film and remember the sort of dwarf-like bandits that uh, Ivan encounters. And I, I, I can't help but wonder if they are sort of serving
0: as a version of Leshy in that regard. Hmm. Yeah, like a dangerous, chaotic force in the forest that, that Ivan has to interact with and trick uh, I can't remember. In the movie, doesn't he? Aren't there clubs in their scenes as well? Like they have, to, they end up throwing clubs up in the air, and then later the clubs come back down and hit them. Yes, they do. That seems to uh connect to like the automatic fighting club that the Leshy were yeah. arguing over.
1: Yeah, I was, I was wondering the same thing. Um, now, now again, this, this I read this in the anthology of Russian folk tales by Jack V. Haney, who. I believe that this particular volume has 99 different folk tales, some very small, some a little bit longer, uh, and also commentary on them. and It's it's a wonderful read. I, I recommend it. But he also had like a, several volumes uh, on top of this that he had compiled, and these were just like the 99 best or most uh, uh, you know helpful to, to share with readers. Uh, but he, he, he adds later in, uh, in this particular volume, he says, stories featuring the forest spe- spirit, the leshi, are uncommon. And perhaps this, again, speaks to the more archaic take on uh, this being a more archaic take on spirits of the forest, which are less narrative compared to other embodiments of the forest and wildness, such as Baba Yaga or even, uh, you know, Father Frost uh, Morozko himself, you know, who's very much an embodiment of, of the winds of winter.
0: So it seems that maybe the leshy in these stories are less going to be like the main villain of the story and more kind of an environmental threat. I mean, the leshy might be something kind of like a like a a particular monster encountered along the way or almost like a like a pit of quicksand, like just something that you've got to worry about in the in the wild environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Now, I want to share some other points that, that Haney makes about Russian folktales in general, because I think these can help us understand Russian folklore a bit more and also understand the Leshis place in these tales. So Haney contends that there are there are more folktales that may have emerged out of the Russian people than any other. Uh, He says, due in part to the fact that well into the 20th century, Russia, quote, remained an illiterate and basically peasant country where folk traditions were strong and carefully maintained.
0: Okay, so is the idea that if the culture was more literate, the folk tales would have been less less retold?
1: Um, Well, I I guess the idea is like once you start writing them down, right, then you have like a total, Mm. a, a different energy take over. Uh, Regarding the folk tales. And then you also have different influences on the shape of those tales. But in Russia, he's arguing that they remained um, like the property of of the the common Russian people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were speaking of this sort of Russian existence that had not uh, changed a a whole lot, uh, you know, throughout their history. But then he points out that the 20th century comes along, and this is an exceedingly hard time on the Russian people, and it ends up disrupting their storytelling traditions. He also points out that Russia has the second largest number of tale types, according to the international classification system for folktales. Uh, and this gets you know, when you get into the, the, the scholarly study of folktales, you find that yeah, there are all these different uh, classifications for the different types of tales you encounter in cultures around the world. He points out that there are a lot of animal tales. Uh, The frequent villains you encounter are, of course, the Baba Yaga, witches, nasty dwarves, shape-shifting magicians. However, Baba Yaga is also sometimes a donor or helper. Frequent characters in general, you have Baba Yaga under hut, you have the Firebird, Koshche the Deathless, Prince Ivan Zarevich, who we already mentioned, uh, Princess Elena, and of course, a generic czar is often uh, involved as well. Uh, you know, the king that is, uh, and, and, and I believe that the exact nature of the king depends, uh, you know, sometimes a little more on the cruel side, sometimes a little more on the benevolent side, kind of like just sort of the generic king you encounter in other um,
0: folkloric traditions. Now, it does seem that a huge number of these tales do involve having to travel through the forest, right? Absolutely.
1: The, the hero frequently wanders through the woods and at some point receives help in his quest from an animal or some other sort of supernatural aid. And, uh, and sometimes the character he encounters is a devil or the devil or the devil's offspring. Uh, this this was interesting. Um, this is a whole category of tale, Ivan the fool versus the devil or the devil's offspring. And it's not really Ivan as a fool, but Ivan, I think, is more, you know, he's clever, but in kind of a a, a roguish way. Mm. And in these tales, uh, Haney writes, it's important to recognize uh, first the satire, but then also that the devil is not really a Christian devil, but, quote, rather a figure derived from the various malevolent spirits that inhabited the Russian peasant's universe. The forest spirit or leshy, the water spirit or Vodiana and others too numerous to mention. So, again, the idea of the devil comes along and it ends up kind of
0: absorbing these other ideas of evil things in the wild wood. This is just another one of the many interesting ways that the, the concept of Satan or the devil has evolved over the centuries. I mean, like if you go back to the earliest versions of Satan, even in, like in the, in the Jewish tradition – Satan then is not even presented as, as monstrous or evil. Like in the book of Job, as seems to be one of the earliest references to Satan, Satan is like one of God's angels. You know, he, he kind of works for him. He, he's sort of like a, a prosecutor or a, uh, a, like a detective doing, uh, you know, trying to sniff out disloyalty. Uh, but later on, you, you incorporate more and more into this adversary figure of the monstrous, of the evil, of the all that's wrong with the world. And I think this is one of the reasons that the devil figure accumulates the monstrosity of every particular location and every culture that absorbs him.
1: Now, Haney does have some, some other stories with Leshy uh, popping up. Uh, one of them that, uh, that was really good is a story called A Prince and His Uncle. Which features an old trapper in the woods who serves the forest spirit or Leshy. When a greedy king shows up looking to squeeze more money out of the commoners, he asks the old man how he catches his beasts. And the old man says, Well, the forest spirit sets out snares, and the beast is stupid and gets caught. So the king hears this and he gets an idea. He bribes the old man with wine and money for the location of these snares that, again, were set by the leshy. And then the king orders the leshy caught and fettered to an iron post. Meanwhile, the prince is a decent lad and listens to the leshies pleas for release. He instructs the prince in how to obtain the key to his irons and distracts uh, the others uh, uh, while he's being released. Afterwards, the king is enraged and sends the prince out on an excursion into the far corners of the world as punishment. And he sends his old uncle with him to guide him. This uncle figure, who it's always in quotation, so it's like not really his uncle. Um, but then again, it's not. Uh, Super important to the story, seemingly. Uh, Eventually, the prince and the uncle switch places. And at one point, the leshy meets the prince again and gives him some magical items, which include once more the self-setting tablecloth, but also a magic mirror that shows you whatever you want to see and a magical musical instrument that kind of plays on demand. And then he later provides him with a horse and magical vodka to give him strength against a terrible monster. Now, sadly, the story doesn't really involve the leshy beyond this point. Uh, but we see the leshy kind of serving this role uh, in the later portions of the story as this magical forest creature that shows up and provides assistance uh, to the hero. But then he, he goes on to share what I think is my favorite leshy story that I read. Um, okay. Haney shares a story titled The Forest Spirit. Uh, which hinges on this notion that if a leshy or some or various other creatures like a like a coldun which is a type of male sorcerer if you if they are not invited to your wedding they may show up anyway and find some way to spoil it
0: <laughs> wait so you are supposed to invite them
1: apparently that's that's one tradition is go ahead and invite the leshy it's, it would be rude not to because if you don't invite the leshy he will show up and he might cause chaos but i guess if you do invite him he won't show up Uh, they you know they're fickle chaotic creatures
0: it's reverse psychology
1: yeah so uh this this the forest spirit is a fun little tale there's not much to it but this is how it goes down basically so there's an old peasant who grows and threshes grain but then he suddenly keeps coming into the drying shed to find that the grain he just harvested is already threshed now basically this means somebody's doing half his work for him for free but you know, he's 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 an old codger, uh, you know, probably a bit grumpy about things. He wants to get to the bottom of this. He doesn't want unexplained threshing going on in his um his, his drying shed. So he asks an old woman for help and she says, Well, I'm just an old woman, I can't help you. You're gonna have to go ask the local witch. So he goes to the local witch and she says well look, it's a leshy that's doing this. Uh, but if you want to stop him, you want to catch the leshy, this is what you do. Stake out your shed and then you sneak up on him and you loop a, a necklace with a cross around uh, on it around his neck and that'll capture him, making him your servant. And so the old man does just that. Uh, the leshy of course immediately asks for release and offers to help the old man build a new slip to haul grain on in exchange for his freedom. The old man agrees. Uh, but then keeps asking for more work in exchange for the leshy's release. So he's like, yeah, well, I need some firewood. Maybe after you get me some firewood. And then he's like, oh, well, you know, I need the
0: firewood chopped up as well. Uh, I am altering the deal. Pray I alter it no further. Right. But then finally, he says, you know,
1: she says, All right, how about now? Can I go free? I've chopped your wood. I made you this slip. Uh, you know, what, what else do you want? He's like, No, my niece is getting married next week and you're coming to the <laughs> wedding with me. <laughs> so the old man is just straight up taking the, the Leshy to a family wedding as his plus one.
0: Well, does it explain why he wants the Leshy to go to the wedding? Is he just trying to like pad out the attendance? I don't know. Like, it, he doesn't ex- expressly say in this book
1: or doesn't, you know, interpret it expressly in this book. So I don't know if it's a sense where, like, I'm supposed, you're supposed to invite a Leshy to the wedding. So I will, I'll just straight up bring him. Like, maybe he is misinterpreting the tradition, being an old man who lives in the woods. Or, um, or maybe, maybe he's lonely. I'm not sure. I, I kind of like the idea that he's lonely and it's just like he's spending so much time with the Leshy. like, no, I, I'm, I'm, come to this wedding with me. Come hang out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I may need you to chop some wood during
1: the ceremony. Yeah. So, anyway, they attend. The leshy seems at first to be standing back and minding his own business in the corner of the room, standing by the doors, out of sight, not even partaking of the food and the drink. But then the leshy sees a pretty maid bringing out the soured milk in a cup, which, uh, by the context of the story, seems to be just part of the, the ceremony. Mm-hmm. So the leshy immediately takes her, spins her around, and then she falls down, spilling the milk all over the place. And the leshy begins to clap and laugh at this loudly, so everybody hears it. The guests do not find this amusing at all, and they chastise the old man for bringing such a guest with him to the event.
0: Oh, so this is the first
1: time they've noticed there's a leshy here at the wedding? Well, yeah, he's standing behind, over there by the door. Nobody noticed uh, right. until he started, uh, you know, making a spectacle and spoiling the wedding. So everyone is displeased and they, 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 they curse him and all and cuss at him. Uh, the old man and the leshy go home. The leshy asks once more for his release and the old man grants it to him. And I love the way uh, that uh, Haney winds this up. Uh, He attributes this tale, the telling of this tale, to a 62-year-old peasant who related it in 1941. And the the final quote at the end of the tale is, in olden times they believed this, but now they don't believe anything.
0: (laughs) Those darn kids no longer believe in the leshy.
1: Yeah, I just yeah, I love the, the the grumpiness of the tale, like the tale that like I'm going to tell you this story. Kids don't believe it anymore, but it happened.
0: This is actually similar to uh, another tale that I was reading, at least summarized in uh, in one of the sources we were looking at for this episode, which was the Encyclopedia of Russian and Slavic Myth and Legend by Mike Dixon Kennedy. And in this entry, there was a story where. There's, a, there's an old man who lives by the forest, and one day a traveler appears and asks if he can rest in his hut. And the old man says, yeah, sure, you can rest in my hut. Uh, now, the old man is a, is a cattle herdsman who has to you know take his herd of cattle through the forest to graze. And after giving the, uh, the, the traveler a, a good night's rest in his home... He is told, it's like revealed that the traveler was a leshy and was like, you know what? You're not going to have to worry about your cattle anymore. You don't have to follow them around. You just let them go out and roam in the morning and then they'll come back full of and, and give plenty of milk at the end of the day. And this happens for a while until the traveler gets curious about what's happening during the day. So he follows his cattle out and then finds that they are being uh, shepherded in in or I guess not shepherded. I don't know what the term for a person who herds cattle would be, a cat, cattle herded by some old crone. I guess the the idea is that she's a witch or a helper of some kind of the leshy, and when he finds her and tries to speak to her in the forest, she vanishes, and then the basically the blessing is lifted, and he has to keep toiling with his cattle again after that, like they're no longer self-servicing cattle. Uh, and so his curiosity breaks the leshy's goodwill.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, that does seem a very similar story, the idea that the leshy might just spontaneously start helping you out but if you get too greedy about it uh then it's going to backfire on you too greedy or too curious
0: yeah well i mean ultimately i guess one way you could take the moral of that story is just like don't go in there don't look too close at what's happening in the woods don't inquire about the law of the woods just let the woods do its thing
1: yeah all right on that note we're going to take another break but we'll be right back
0: All right, we're back. So clearly a lot of the folktales about the Leshy come from anxieties people have about the idea of getting lost in the woods. Again, remember one of the main threats that the the Leshy in his demon or monster form uh, You know, represents threats in a couple of different ways, one by like kidnapping children or unbaptized babies at the forest's edge, but also by causing people to become lost in the woods. You're traveling through the woods. Maybe you're trying to stick to the path, but then you're lured off the path by the call of the leshy or by the leshy pretending to be somebody, you know, or, you know, or, or mimicking the sound of a distressed child. And then you get lost in the woods. You, you can't find your way home and you perish out among the trees. I wanted to talk about an article that I was reading about the the real life uh, sort of like science and history of people getting lost in the woods. Uh, this is an excerpt adapted from a book called "From Here to There: The Art and Science of Finding and Losing Our Way" by Michael Bond, uh, published by Harvard University Press. This excerpt was published in Wired, and I thought this was really interesting. So. A lot of the article focuses on the story of Geraldine Largay, who was a 66-year-old retired nurse from Tennessee who died in the forest after becoming lost just off of the Appalachian Trail in 2013. And once her body was discovered, details from her diary and her phone clarified what happened. She had been hiking the Appalachian Trail and she moved just slightly off the path in order to go to the bathroom. It was said that she wrote that she went no more than 80 paces off the path, but then afterwards was nevertheless unable to find the trail again. She survived for 19 days before dying of the effects of exposure and starvation, and when her campsite was discovered, it became clear that she was actually less than half a mile from the trail as the crow flies, and that search and rescue teams with dogs had passed within 100 yards of her campsite while she was still alive. She was also really close to some railroad tracks that could have led her out of the forest if she'd known about them. And in this case and others like it, there are there, there's some really kind of like cruel and unsympathetic and 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 dumb ways that people react to this by saying like, oh, how could you, you know how dumb how, you know, she could have survived. How could you get lost when you're that close to the trail? But Bond points out that experienced hikers don't talk like this because. Most of them know actually how easy it is to become hopelessly lost in a forest and how powerful is the urge to do all of the just exactly the wrong things in that scenario. For example, one common piece of advice is if you're lost in the woods, you should immediately stop moving. Like, As soon as you realize that you don't know where you are and you don't know how to get back where you came from, immediately stop moving. Stay in place and you're more likely to survive. Uh, while you're in place, you can come up with a plan if you need to and not exhaust yourself moving around or getting more lost in the process. You can wait for rescue without wor- without wandering further and further away from where you were. Uh, However, the stop and wait plan, while actually very good advice, is extremely difficult to actually follow. Uh, What people with experience report is that the moment you realize you're lost in the woods, you are overcome with a powerful sense of panic that compels you to keep moving. In fact, to start running all over the place. Uh, Bond quotes a British psychologist named Hugo Spears uh, from another work about his experience of becoming temporarily lost in the rainforest in Peru. Uh, So Spears writes, quote, So I didn't go far, but it's the jungle, and 10 meters into the jungle is enough to be completely disoriented. I was lost in this jungle for two hours. They sent a dog out to find me. I wasn't the first person to have a dog sent out. It was terrifying. My brain just wanted me to run, just run, just keep moving. I was very aware that that was not the right strategy. Keeping moving in the jungle is not going to save your life. So I tried to calm down and think carefully and not react at high speed and look at my environment. And I realized I was going in circles, exactly like in the movies. I was using a machete to mark big trees, laying down a thread to know if I'd come that way before. That was starting to work. I'd mark a tree with three slashes, and if I ended up back at that tree, I knew I'd gone in a circle. I was nearly back at the camp when they sent the dog out, but it was a huge relief. It just made me very aware that being really, really lost is quite terrifying. It is not a normal thing. Mm. I think being lost in the woods is one of those types of scenarios where your imagination of it really does not capture what the experience would be like people imagine they're like okay you know i i've i've gotten turned around disoriented before maybe you know in a in in a city or in a neighborhood or something you don't know exactly where you're going but it's pretty easy to find your way back when there are roads and sidewalks and landmarks oh yeah there's that house being lost in the woods is not like that being lost in the woods i think could it could be argued that it is a form of an altered state of consciousness that is terrifying and completely short circuits your better judgment in multiple ways
1: oh absolutely and you know i i i have uh, i have friends who have uh, been lost in the forest before and uh, they were not, uh, like, as lost as, like, one can truly become lost in the forest, or certainly as lost as one could uh, in the times of these folktales, because they at least had not lost cell coverage for their phone and were able to to use that. You know, they were still tethered to the to the civilized world via their, their device, and it was still a terrifying experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, try to imagine it without those devices, without even a compass, mm-hmm. uh. Again, this is, there are so many ways that imagining what it would be like to be lost in the forest does not really cut it. Like You're not likely to predict a lot of the ways that your normal powers of navigation fail. Uh, for example, of course, now uh, if you are lost in the woods, it is generally advised that you should just stop and wait for rescue. Uh, but if you are going to walk, you need to have a good idea where you're going and try to travel in a straight line. You might think that going straight is easy, right? I can walk a straight line. We all, you know, we walk straight lines all day, but actually it is not easy without landmarks, without trails or a compass lost people really do. And this is proven by research. They just walk in circles. Mm. Uh, there was research in 2009 by, uh, by Jan Suman, who used GPS monitors to track volunteers while they tried to navigate in a straight line through a couple of natural environments without the aid of external landmarks or signs. Uh, this was the Sahara Desert and Germany's Bienwald Forest, and it did not go well. Uh, when they couldn't see the sun – People could not travel in a straight line at all. Small initial errors in orientation would just quickly grow wider as they piled upon themselves. And people actually truly did just walk in circles. I know it sounds like that wouldn't happen. You're like, no, 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 I could, I could go in a straight line, but you probably couldn't. You'd just go in circles. Uh, and to read from the article quote suman concluded that with no external cues to help them people will not travel more than around 100 meters from their starting position regardless of how long they walk for wow. that, that's so hard to believe but apparently it's true
1: yeah the the path in the forest is not just a suggestion you know it is a, it is a lifeline
0: but uh, another big part of this article uh, bon-, bon talks about how being lost in the forest, it doesn't just make it hard to navigate. It does that, but it also affects the way we reason. Uh, he says being lost is a cognitive state in that the woods make it extremely difficult, sometimes basically impossible to form a mental map of your surroundings because woods just kind of look like woods. If you if you're not used to being in them, uh, he says, quote, nothing in your spatial memory matches what you see your normal mental equipment for navigation becomes close to useless. But Even more so, Bond argues that being lost is an emotional state. Quote, It delivers a psychic double whammy. Not only are you stricken with fear, you also lose your ability to reason. You suffer what neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux calls a hostile takeover of consciousness by emotion. 90% of people make things a lot worse for themselves when they realize they are lost by running, for instance. Because they're afraid, they can't solve problems or figure out what to do. They fail to notice landmarks or fail to remember them. They lose track of how far they've traveled. They feel claustrophobic, as if their surroundings are closing in on them. Uh, And Bond also says that there are chemical signatures of this lost-in-the-woods panic. Uh, He quotes a search and rescue specialist named Robert Kester, who argues that being lost is, in terms of neurobiology, similar to a panic attack. The body... Uh, floods with catecholamines, and the, the standard fight or flight behavior patterns get triggered. So, in a subjective sense, it often feels kind of like a break with reality. You know, you you're just kind of you feel like you're losing your mind and this can even last after a person uh gets out of the state. Uh, he he also quotes Ed Cornell, who's a psychologist who studies the behavior of people who get lost. And and Cornell says that it can be really difficult to get information out of a person who's been lost. They often have trouble communicating their experience and can't remember quite what happened to them. And uh and, and the the type of disorientation and panic and stress that's brought on by being lost in the woods Causes people sometimes to experience delusions and hallucinations. Even in otherwise healthy people or seemingly otherwise healthy people, they will sometimes report hallucinating interactions with people in the forest. And given all this, it's not hard at all to see where stories of an otherworldly demon who lives in the forest and lures people into becoming lost, where they would come from. You know, you can easily imagine somebody becoming lost in the forest in medieval Russia, and then by chance they manage to find their way back or get rescued somehow. And what is their experience? It might be kind of hard for them to remember what happened. That's strange. And they maybe experience like stress-based hallucinations while they were out there hearing voices or hearing sounds, maybe even seeing people who were taunting them or, or luring them this way and that. Uh, you, it, it becomes quite clear how stories like this could come out of real experiences.
1: Yeah and and I, I I think it's also interesting how you know we can compare this to the leshy and the idea of the leshy being both gigantic and small hiding behind blades of grass and also being you know the size of a bell tower there's this kind of I, this idea of the, the nature of the leshy warps physical space in a way that seems to line up well with this um, the, the experiences we're describing here
0: yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I got to say, researching this episode has <laughs> has made me think kind of differently. I mean, I, I'm somebody who I, I love to go hiking in the woods on a, on a path, of course. And in the past, I think I might have been, I don't know, more likely to, to say like, oh, there's something that looks cool over there. Maybe I'll go off the path. I, I think that's something people should genuinely be cautious about. Like, it is yeah. much easier to lose the path and lose your way in the woods than you might think.
1: Yeah, certainly. Keep in mind for anybody who listened to our episode on mushroom foraging and decides to get into it because, you know, often it's the case that the, you you spot the, you know, the, 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 the tempting chanterelles just a, a little off the path mm-hmm. and you may go out to them. And then you, it may, that may work out just fine uh, you know, for you, but it also might not. Uh, especially if you then see the next patch of chanterelles or what might be chanterelles but also might be uh just some some you know orangish colored leaves on the ground and then before you know it uh, the leshy has led you astray
0: we will eat them we won't eat them we will saute, <laughs> saute them in butter we will be sauteed in butter <laughs>
1: I I do uh, you know again I have to to really recommend that that Haney book for anyone who wants to read Russian folk tales but mm-hmm. I I have to drive home again just how good that sixty five Jack Frost film is not only in terms of just what a beautiful production it is but it seems to really capture. The nature of those Russian folk tales because there's this like whimsy and danger and magic uh, that is inherent in a lot of these beings. Like, for instance, the, the Baba Yaga uh, herself is, is in the tales often described, you know, as being, you know, having these qual- qualities of a, of a woodland monster spirit, but also of just like a ridiculous farting old woman, uh, you know. And, uh-huh. uh, and, and all of that I think is reflected very well in that whimsical performance in the 65 film.
0: Yes, Tom Petty riffs aside, it is haunted by peasant genius. It it really is. You
1: know, another interesting point that Haney uh,
0: made in his uh, overview of Russian folktales is
1: that uh, aside from the fact that the, the hero very frequently uh, goes into the forest and has an encounter – uh, also, the hero always prevails, mm-hmm. uh, like haney really underlined that like the the hero is going to win in these stories, so again, we can think back to so many of these tales dealing with like the the chaotic nature of the woods and it being they, they being stories about how humans can and do overcome the chaos of the wilds
0: though it 's funny because the stories also uh they don't encourage what in the modern day at least is generally the best behavior if you become lost in the woods yes. like the you know Ivan Sarovich does not sit down and wait for rescue he does not hug a tree which is actually the smartest thing to do if you get lost he's like no forge ahead <laughs> yeah it always works out for him eventually if you get lost don't be like Ivan <laughs> i guess unless you've got a self-setting tablecloth then you might be okay
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you got a self-setting tablecloth, that's really going to help you out in the long run. I mean, that, that means you don't have to worry
0: about food and water. Do you think the food from the self-setting tablecloth was good, or was it just like, you know, kind of, yeah, you know, it's bread or whatever? Or is it, like, really nice gourmet <laughs> stuff?
1: Um, I mean, I'm assuming it was probably, like, basic, like, everyday food, uh I, I guess it was pretty good. I mean, uh, uh, there's a section where where Ivan's dining from it, um, and I don't know. It's just not. I don't think it was mentioned in that particular retelling of the tale. But I imagine it as being like typical, like typical Russian uh, people's food:
0: mm-hmm. uh, borscht and morels.
1: Yeah, I guess so. You know. All right. We're going to go ahead and close this out here. Obviously, there, there's there's so many other things we could talk about with Russian folklore. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of material out there. You know, who knows if, if you all enjoyed listening to this episode, perhaps we could return in the future. Uh, but we would love to hear from you in the meantime. Some of the key questions. Um, uh, would regard, of course, uh, did you grow up watching Jack Frost? Uh, if so, tell us about that and its impact on your, uh, you know, your your, your holidays or your just a sort of appreciation of cinema in general. I understand it was quite influential on some filmmakers, by the way. Uh, I, I also am interested if anybody has any definite answers regarding father or grandfather Mushroom. Does he have an existence in Russian, Russian folklore prior to that 1965 film? I would, I would love to, to uh, have some clarity on that question. And, of course, if you have been lost in the woods, either just a little bit lost or like majorly lost in the woods, if you would like to share uh, your, your experience with us and tell us how it relates to uh, both the, you know, the studies that Joe mentioned and also the, the folklore we've discussed here, we would love to hear from you. Totally. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. We just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to just get to us quickly, you can go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, and that'll take you to our iHeart listing for the show. And if you go there, there's like a store button uh, on that page, and that'll take you over to our Key Public store where you can buy a shirt with a monster on it.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.